If you don't know me, my name is Rob Pfeiffer, and I serve as uh, one of the pastors here at Florence Killarney. It's great to be with you. Uh, yes, Pastor Paul is away. Um, uh, he's had a great trip with the folks that went, and then if you've tuned in on the devotionals uh, this past week, uh, you, you see the, the impact they're having there, but also I think how it's been a blessing to be connected to what, what, uh, what they're doing there and how God is, is working in the group. Uh, be praying for the group, uh, preparing for Pastor Paul as he travels back. Uh, he'll be back here next Sunday, uh, Lord willing, uh, giving us the word, and uh, looking forward to that. Uh, this morning, we, we do continue on in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've been here for quite some time, and, uh, and we are wrapping up uh, chapter 11 this morning. And uh, it's been a, a wonderful week, a, a very sobering week for me to prepare. I also just want to say thank you to, uh, to Pastor Lance Olam at, at Midtown, and then also Joe Donaldson. He's here as our pastoral resident. And uh, it's been really good to interact with them over the week, it's, it's been helpful to me in just uh, helping to have a structure with the sermon, but also the, some of the content. And I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, the, the three congregations here at Killarne, but also Midtown and East, uh, we, we preach through the, the same passages of Scripture. Uh, all three congregations are, are preaching through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, it is encouraging to know that the, the Gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, is being preached uh, to the city at large. Uh, but also, um, again, like I said, just grateful to come together uh, with the other men that are preaching and be able to give uh, preparation and give you uh, the sermon this morning. And, and as I was uh, preparing, I, I, was, I was thinking back, just uh, back to my, my schooling days, okay? And maybe you bear with me for a moment. Can you remember back to your schooling days, the, the, the many years you spent going to elementary school, middle school, high school? Uh, into college if you did and how that continued. And, um, you know, I went way back in the memory banks, okay, and of, of all the teachers that I had growing up. And, and there are many, many that really impacted my life in a, in a wonderful way. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe there's certain teachers that you connected with. And it wasn't just the subject matter that they're teaching, but there's also a connection with you as a person, and I think back to several teachers, and I'm going to give them a shout out. Is that okay? I'm thinking back to my first grade teacher, Mrs. Johnson. My fifth grade teacher, Mr. Barton. And then there was my seventh and eighth grade guitar teacher, uh, Mr. Hudson. And, and we all called him Hudson because we thought we were cool. And uh, he allowed that. And uh, I'm actually friends with him on Facebook today, which is pretty cool. We still chat and he reminds me how much of a little scoundrel I was. Also, um, I think to my 11th and 12th grade teacher, Mr. Johnson, this is no relation to my first grade teacher, but Mr. Johnson, he taught me geometry and trigonometry, um, arguably the most hard, like the hardest teacher I ever had. But then I think also of my 12th grade chorus teacher, Mr. Rose. Uh, very impactful, very much met me in a time where God was teaching me about grace and Growing with him, and Mr. Rose played a big part of that. And so can you relate? I mean, there's, there's people in our lives that we encounter that teach us, that, that, that you know, take us under their wing. And maybe the, the main common denominator here, it's not that with these teachers, it's not that they were all cool, they were lenient with the rules, because I promise you, Mr. Johnson, my math teacher, he was not cool, all right? And he was the, he was the most strict teacher 
I ever had, but I admired him greatly, and I still do to this day about how he approached life and then also how he taught his students. And maybe that what you can see is that there's an admiration that we have when we think of those who have uh, impacted our lives in this way and we respect them. But I think that you know, the main reason that we find teachers meaningful to us is that, that they are compelling. They, they, they keep our attention, not again just to the subject matter, but there's something that we're drawn to about who they are and how they approach life. And then also the, the care and respect that they have for their students. See, I always got a sense that these teachers in my life, they, you know, they were seeking to meet me on my level. And then they were also seeking to bring me to a place of new understanding, but also looking at me as not just simply a student, but as a human. And you see, I wanted to learn from them. And I wanted to emulate them because of this. It was inspiring. They were compelling to me. And my prayer this morning as we open God's word is, is that, that we are truly, we are confronted with the most compelling person to have ever walked this earth, who is alive today, and who gives arguably the most compelling invitation to all the world in just three simple words. Come to me. We're wrapping up a section in Matthew that began back in chapter 9, verse 35. This is Jesus, you know, this beginning his, it's called the missional discourse. There's, there's a lot going on here as Jesus sets out to, to spread the good news and, and, and to teach the gospel. In chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went, out, went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And we see in chapter 10 that the, the, the missional expansion of Jesus' ministry, it, it happens where in chapter 10 he calls to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So this is multiplying the gospel message is going forth. The power of God is being displayed and, and people's lives are forever being changed. At the same time, we saw that Jesus also gave warning and instructions to his disciples that persecution, it will come. And as they minister and proclaim the gospel, this is going to happen. And he encouraged his disciples to have no fear in the midst of the persecution. And Jesus doubled down on the persecution warning by pointing out the dividing nature of the gospel message that exposes the chasm between the response of belief and unbelief. As we get to chapter 11, Jesus continues his teaching and preaching throughout the cities. And in today's passage, the last part in verses 20 through 30, this clues us in to Jesus' assessment on how this went. For a time, Jesus may have been the talk of the town, right? All the miracles, the, the message being proclaimed, the crowds following him. But I think we're going to see that that interest it quickly waned. And even in Galilee, including Jesus' own town of Capernaum, the honeymoon period is apparently over. And Jesus turns from commenting to the crowds about John the Baptist, 
but now turns to a rhetorical address to the Galilean communities where his own ministry has been focused. And this is where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 20 through 30. And would you please stand with me as we read this together? Please stand if you're willing and able as, we, as I read aloud these 10 verses. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your glorious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come together this morning, my prayer to you is that you open our minds and our hearts and help to illuminate the truth that we find in these scriptures this morning. Help us to be impacted and to not take lightly the judgment that's being pronounced in this passage. Help us to turn and understand just your sovereign grace. Behold it, worship you in it but to also take hold of this invitation from your son Jesus to come to him. Holy Spirit, bind our hearts together, illuminate this truth to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the, the title of the sermon today is Only Jesus. And our main point is Jesus is irresistibly compelling. He is irresistibly compelling. And why? Well, that brings us to our three points. We're going to see that, number one, only Jesus is our rescue from judgment. And that only Jesus is our path to the Father. And finally, only Jesus offers rest for our soul. And these points, they converge to an overall theme that we must go to Jesus. We must go to Jesus. And so as we think about point one, that 
Only Jesus is our rescue from judgment. We focus here in the beginning part of the passage. In these verses we're looking at now, Jesus denounces the unbelief of the cities in which he had done most of his miracles. As we heard from Pastor Scott in last week's sermon, John the Baptist's doubt, this was not unbelief. But to these people who Jesus was speaking to, they were not wrestling with doubt. They were completely indifferent, and their indifference was an expression of their utter disbelief. And Jesus had done most of the miracles recorded in Matthew in these cities that he's addressing. We can find seven miracles where he healed the servant of a Roman centurion. He cured Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. He cast out demons and healed other sick people. He healed a paralytic. He raised a dead girl to life. He restored sight to two blind men and cast out a demon out of a mute person, enabling him to talk. And these are just a selection of the many great works that Jesus did. But still, still, the people of these cities would not repent of their sin and come to him. And Jesus pronounces judgment on them. If you're like me, don't want to talk about judgment. And you may have not signed up for it this morning, right? I get it. But the important thing to think about in this passage, that it's one of the most helpful passages in the New Testament for understanding judgment. And there are some difficult lessons that we can learn from what Jesus is speaking from, and I just want to focus on those for a second here. Number one, from what Jesus is pronouncing, the judgment he's pronouncing, we, we know, we learn that there will be judgment, simply put. And the reason we don't like to think about judgment is that we do not want to admit that there will be one. And if we do, we tend to minimize it altogether. See, Jesus does not treat judgment lightly. Neither should we. He says it should be feared. He starts out by saying, woe to you. Okay? And this isn't this pronouncement of just anger and just oppression I want us to understand the heart of Jesus as we're going through this. When Jesus is saying, woe to you, this is communicating his distress, his concern, his wrestling, and him really seeing and being impacted by people who will not repent. His heart is troubled. So as he says, woe to you, it's a pleading. It indicates the great sorrow and distress as Jesus pronounces this judgment. We also see that there are degrees of, of punishment. One of the most frightening ideas in this passage is its teaching about degrees of punishment. Jesus says that as terrible as the judgment of Tyre and Sidon will be, it will not be as bad as the judgment of Chorazin and Bethsaida. And as terrible as the judgment of Sodom will be, it will not be as horrible as the judgment of Capernaum. Now, as the people Jesus was speaking to, they were very aware of these cities of past, especially Sodom. And they're being told, and they know that the wickedness of Sodom brought destruction upon that city, but yet Jesus is saying, no, 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 you will face more judgment. That is sobering. Dare I say it's offensive. 
I would think that the people of that time who knew, and here Jesus is speaking this judgment to them, how offensive that was. We also see that God's judgments take account of his contingent knowledge. Okay, this means that, that God's judgments are based not only on what people have done, but also on what they would have done if the conditions under which they had lived had been different. Okay? In this case, we see that Jesus says to Tyre, Sodom, and Sodom would have repented if the miracles they, that had been done in Galilee had been done there. I mean, think about that. Jesus is saying, y'all, if what I did here had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. That is, that is provoking. That is confrontational. And you would think at that moment there's something that should be clicking in the minds of the people as to why Jesus, in his distress, in his concern, is just trying to help them understand this point. Because it is real. It is detrimental. And even as I say this last point about how this comparison that Jesus makes to, to Sodom and the, and the current cities that Jesus is in, you know, I think another way to put it for us to understand is, is when I think of the, the opportunities to believe in Christ that have been given to the people of America in our day, I tremble for America. I tremble for you if, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. I mean, no nation has ever had the opportunities to repent and believe on Jesus Christ as we have, especially in today's age. Social media, the information overload that is just available at just a click. In Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 4, it says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let that word just capture your heart. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, the message of the gospel, the great salvation of Jesus Christ that is presented in the three words, come to me. Come to me. We can also see that from the judgment that Jesus is pronouncing that we can conclude that, that the worst sin of all is unbelief. Now, we don't think this way since unbelief is our chief sin. This is not where we typically go. We instead prefer to point out the sins of others by observing how outrageous and inhumane they are, right? We don't focus on the areas of, of our own unbelief or, or even just understanding if we've come to Christ, just the, the miracle that it truly is to, to come to him and to be given life in him. And that unbelief separates us from Christ. That unbelief separates us from God. 
You can see why this is at the top. And look, I know we could collectively come up with a list of those in, in history, right, that, that are the greatest sinners that did the most wicked deeds to people. And it is true. And they will receive judgment for this. But what's interesting is that as we read this passage, there, there's no record of the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum having done anything particularly inhumane or wicked. But yet Christ is comparing them to Sodom, which is a clear description of that going on, right? You see, these people that Jesus was speaking to, they, they were just going about their business as we do. Yet they refused to repent and turn to Jesus, and Jesus said that their unbelief was, far, was a far worse evil than the sins of the other notoriously wicked cities. It should cause us to pause, not ignore the wickedness of our society, not ignore the sin being committed against people that are vulnerable and that should be protected. We don't ignore these things, but what we must understand is our own hearts, our own heart that tends toward unbelief. And not just unbelief of not accepting Christ, but Christian, you who are here today, how does unbelief in your life continue to ensnare your walk with Christ? How does your unbelief in God's promises continue to allow fear to creep into your life, to take you away and doubt God's word? But yet, but yet, what are we called to do? To trust, to believe. Again, think of the invitation from Jesus, come to me. If you're struggling in unbelief today, Jesus says, come to him. Whatever you're struggling with today, Jesus says, come to him. And what is the root of this sin of, of unbelief? Well, Jesus suggests that it was pride and, and does so by linking the unbelief of Capernaum to the pride of the king of Babylon in verse 23. Verse 23 it's an echo of Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 15, where it says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like most high. Verse 15, but you are brought down the Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. You see, this is what Jesus is comparing Capernaum, that their, their pride, you think you're going to be raised up? No, your unbelief is going to take you to hell. You're down to Hades, down to the pit. And as we, as we take this in, what we're seeing is that the people Jesus was speaking to, they, you see, they were receiving from God, but they were not responding. They were receiving the miracles of Jesus. They were receiving his blessing and ministry, but they weren't responding. And you see, when you respond, when you receive from God, and you understand his power, you should repent. When we're faced with the truth of, of, of what is called of us and called of our hearts and we're impacted with understanding the power of God and maybe there's something he's done in your life to reveal his power, it's a call to repent. 
It's a call to place him as the most high. It's a call to walk toward him in obedience. It's a call to follow him. But also hear it with the invitation of, come to me. Do you hear the heart of Christ? Do you hear the heart of God? Come to me. So we see that there was a refusal to learn. And Jesus' pronouncement of judgment speaks to the self-righteous minded who think they are better, but in actuality they are more blind. And there is a deeper level of accountability for those have, who have received much light. These are sobering, sobering words that Jesus gives. And I think that oftentimes when we think of hardness of heart, see, this is not simply an information problem. Right, we, we believe that oftentimes more information will fix the problems of our mind and circumstances. I just need to know more. I need to get more from my counselor. I need to get more from my doctor. I need to get more advice here and more advice there. But oftentimes we're not focusing on the unbelief of our hearts. Oftentimes our problems with repentance is not, what we, is not that we need more information. It's that we have not applied and appropriated the things that are the most true and necessary for our situation. In this case, it's Jesus. Our deepest need, and what this helps to understand as we focus on the words of Jesus, is that our deepest need is to be rescued from the coming judgment. You see, that's why Jesus is saying, come to him, because you must. There is no other way to be rescued from the judgment. Without Jesus, we are utterly lost. Without Jesus, we are completely and only under the judgment and wrath of God. There is nothing that will change that except Jesus. And you see, it doesn't take away that we have needs, right? We struggle. We need help. But you see, unless we're focusing with the mindset and the attitude that our greatest need is our need to be rescued from God's judgment, it'll paint a different picture in our lives. We're not operating walking that my greatest need is to be rescued from judgment and God has provided a way through Jesus Christ and worshiping him in that will, I believe, help fuel our faith and dependence upon God to seek the answers we need in times of trouble. But I would say probably the most we need is just the comfort and strengthening of our faith. You see, there's an accountability coming that what you have done with Jesus will matter. And this is the thing that we must hear from this judgment. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, have been, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear for a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We must turn to Jesus. As we head to point two, not only do we know that only Jesus is our only rescue from the judgment, but he is our only path to the Father. And as we move through this passage, we, we see this shift from the pronouncement of judgment to a prayer that Jesus is offering. I think Charles Spurgeon had it right when, when he suggested that 
at this point of Jesus' teaching, the heaviness that, that must have been on Jesus as he spoke of God's judgment on the cities of Galilee lifted a bit, and his brow must have cleared. And we see this shift in the passage that, that Jesus is giving thanks to his Father. And let's go through what Jesus says here. In verse 25, it says, And at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We're seeing that, that Jesus' prayer, he is giving thanks to God. He's, he's, he's focusing on God's amazing grace, his amazing electing grace, that it is all of God. But we also begin to see that there's a mystery that Jesus is revealing of his connection with God the Father. And we're seeing this, this explained in the prayer of the relation between God the Father and God the Son. See, Jesus speaks here of a personal revelation by God to an individual as a result of which that person turns from sin and trusts Jesus Christ. In verse 25, when Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. These things that Jesus is referring to is the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And what Jesus is saying is that this is only known by God because he is the author. He is the creator. He is the one that, that, that created this salvation plan, that this redemption plan to be unfolded. And then Jesus goes on to say that no one knows what the God, no one knows what God knows except Jesus. Because the gospel has been committed to him by God. And because being God's son, he alone knows the Father. So that the message of the gospel that Jesus begins to impart into the world, it's coming from God alone. And you start to see this connection between Jesus and God. And in other words, we're also seeing that God the Father and Jesus are placed on equal footing. And what is affirmed of each is that the salvation of the lost is due entirely to their good pleasure. But as Jesus continues, he's given thanks to the Father that this has been hidden from the wise and the learned. But how is it being revealed? And to whom? Little children. Meaning those who are humble enough to look to him for salvation humble enough to look to him. And the point in all this that I want us to see is that you must come to Jesus because otherwise you are estranged from your Father. We are only connected to the Father through the Son. We are only connected to the Father through the Son. We must come to Jesus to know the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says in the first four verses, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by, his, by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, the Father is communicated to us by the Son. If you want to know the Father, you must know Jesus. You see, Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. Only Jesus, only through Jesus, we are reconciled to him. So we must come to Jesus because it is the only rescue from condemnation and judgment. And we must come to Jesus because there is no other way back to God. If you do not know the Son, you do not know the Father. Follow Christ. Listen from him. Listen. Learn from him. It is connecting you to the very presence and truth of God the Father. As this chapter winds down, we see this beautiful gospel invitation. An invitation to do what those who have believed in Jesus Christ have done. It is difficult to think of an invitation more gracious than this. And it comes from the lips of the one who has just pronounced the most withering judgment on the citizens of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. So just as Jesus is pronouncing the judgment, as he's pronouncing the truth, he is saying, come to me. I am telling you the state of your souls. Come to me. I'm not just leaving you there. I'm not just leaving you in judgment. I'm saying, come to me. Because of what is to come, the only rescue is me. Come to me. Come to me. This is the heart of Christ. It speaks the heart of God. The things in your life right now that you feel you're called to, that you can't do, that you have no, you feel like you have no energy to do, go to Jesus. God's grace will abound. God gives us the grace to follow and be obedient to what he calls us to do, even in the face of it being hard, even in the face of it being, feeling it's unjust. I'm supposed to forgive this person? This is unjust. God says, come to me. Find forgiveness from me and let your heart be free and show forgiveness. So why is this so gracious? This invitation to come to Jesus it's an invitation for everyone. It's a universal offer because everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs rescue from God's judgment. The invitation is to all. Unless we are living with the judgment to come in view, we will never prioritize our need for Jesus. You see, the citizens of Capernaum may have had their felt needs as we do, but Jesus was not one of them Therefore, they miss the opportunity. See, only the needy find Jesus. And the invitation is to all. The invitation is, to, is for those who are burdened by sin. You see, the phrase weary and burdened does not refer to physical weakness. It chiefly refers to a sense of sin's burdens and the need for a Savior. Guys, the, the unrepentant are not burdened by their sin. They are getting along just fine. The repentant, they are burdened by their sin. 
And they believe that Jesus can lift their weight and they turn to him to do it. You see, the more we are burdened, the more we are to turn to Jesus. And that is a reflex that we don't often follow. The more we are burdened, the more we feel overwhelmed, we typically just want to fix and want to stop whatever is happening. And while that is appropriate to try and understand what to do, the, the, the real call to us is to turn to Christ. To turn to Christ. The more we are burdened, the more you will find him. You will find his loving care. We also see that this invitation is to, is to learn about Jesus. When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he was comparing Christianity to a path in which his followers were to walk and he going ahead of them. And this is what's wonderful about this, that when we think of Christianity, okay, Jesus isn't simply just the teacher. He is the subject. And we are to learn of him and from him as we follow him. If you are looking for an understanding of what it means to follow him, I would say that one of the things is to learn to go to the Gospels, to read the words that he spoke, to look at the actions he did, and to understand him and to learn of him. And finally, we see that the invitation, it offers rest for tired people. This invitation from Jesus offers rest twice and in two different ways. We first see that the offer of rest, it's a rest that is given and it's also a rest that is found. You see, there is a rest given at the beginning of the verse where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Meaning, the rest when we find Jesus. The rest when we come to Christ. The rest when we are saved. The rest when we become alive and a new creature in Christ that burden of sin that you carried into that moment, and when you're finally crying out to Jesus to save you, that burden is lifted. You find rest, or you're given rest. Then there's the rest that is found. When Jesus goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, that rest comes as we increasingly learn to follow Jesus in our daily lives. And so I encourage you, find that rest. If you're in Christ, find that rest. Seek him. If you are here today and, and you know and God is working in your heart right now and you're re realizing, I am not following Christ. I have never placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Hear the invitation from Jesus to come to him. And he will give you rest. He will give you forgiveness. And you will have new life in him. And the truth for us this morning that Jesus is the only, is the only person, is the only solution, the measure for those who are struggling and burdened. And it's the only thing your struggling, burdened soul will ever need, and that is Jesus. And I know that many of us here this morning, you may be very distressed by the burdens on your back. And I know and I, I want to empathize with you that these things are real. They are painful. They are heavy. And it's most likely the only thing you can focus on in your life right now. But I also want you to hear from the words of Jesus that no earthly master will lift that burden 
Many will just add to it. The majority will just ignore it because they have the burdens of their own. It just centers us back to the fact that we need Jesus. And Jesus says, come to me. And he will give you the rest. I think back to a story that took place about 10 years ago on one of our youth trips. One of our middle school trips that we take to the wilderness, we call them wilderness trips, and one of the things we do on these trips is we go backpacking. And there's spiritual purpose in that. We use it as an object lesson to just understand the weight of sin and to actually, a good way to feel it as you're carrying that backpack. And you see, when, when, when Pastor Rob takes middle schoolers on a, a backpacking trip, we're not just going around the corner. We're at least gonna go about 10 miles, all right? Not only that, your backpack is not like your school backpack. It's like we're stuffing that thing full of everything that we can find, okay? Things like a big, big fat tick that's on their back. It's so packed, okay? And the kids are like, Pastor Rob, I think I have enough in my pack. I'm like, nope, there's more we can push in there. Like, we want to weigh you down. Not simply to weigh down, but we have things to carry. But I'll never forget on this trip that we were, we were, we're about four miles in, and we got to one of our stops, and all of a sudden it started storming, raining, thundering, lightning crashing nonstop. And I quickly realized we, we, we can't stay here. This is too dangerous. I mean, there's lightning striking very close. And so luckily we had a contingency in place. We had vans close by. The kids didn't know this because um, I didn't want them to know vans were close by, so they'd give up hiking. But, of course, if we're in danger, we're going to go to the vans, and so we did. And we packed the vans full of 20-so middle schoolers and 10 liters, and we're all drenched, and we have these backpacks, and we're trying to squeeze in the vans, and we're finally driving off, and I kind of turn to the back and look, and I just see all these poor little children, and they're sitting down, and they still have their backpacks on. (laughs) And it was, I did exactly what you did, I laughed. when I, (laughs) I mean, it was just a funny picture. But I said, guys, take your packs off. You don't need to carry it anymore, right? You see, that's Jesus. The van, the truck, carrying <laughs> you and the load on your back, right? And as we're being carried, yeah, we can kind of let go of a little bit, right? See, Jesus is strong enough to carry you and your burdens. And so I'm encouraging us to, to run to him, to go to him, and again, I don't want to minimize what you're suffering through this morning, but I also want you to hear that, that, that there is no lowness that is too low for Jesus. And there is no farness that is too far away from the nearness of Jesus. That there is no lostness from which Jesus cannot be found. Run to him. Go to him. Hear his invitation. Come to me and go. This is why Jesus is irresistibly compelling. He is the only one who can actually help you. So why not turn to him right now? Turn from all inferior teachers to the one who alone can teach you true godliness and whose teaching will save your souls. Let's pray.